Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. I only have a portion of the text there on your insert, but you can have that handy. You'll want to have Acts 5 starting at verse 17 at your disposal, either by your pew Bible or whatever device you have to look at the text. These are the Acts of the Apostles. This is one of the most exciting books in the Bible for sure. Um, The Acts of the Apostles, you know, that's the book of Acts, but it would be more accurate to call this the Acts of the Resurrected and Ascended Christ by the ministry of His Holy Spirit through the Apostles. But the book of Acts is easier, so we're going to stick with that, and you just know what it means. It's a lot more than just the Apostles doing some things. This is the resurrected Jesus continuing the expansion of his church. I mean, just blowing it open with his apostles, specially equipped by the Holy Spirit, able to do signs and wonders in these inaugural days so that uh, elders would be appointed in churches, churches would multiply, the Word of God would be perpetuated, and people would come to Christ and the church would grow, and the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against it. And this is the beginning of this, and it's a beautiful, exciting story of an episode that happened in history that we, the church, now can look at and draw upon. Uh, We gain strength from it. We gain direction from it as well. Um, We see waves of persecution starting to hit the church. The first one was in chapter 4 when Peter and John um, were preaching the gospel and they healed the crippled man. And the Sanhedrin called them in and said, you can't preach in this man's name anymore and do these acts in this man's name. And they said, you decide, but we have to follow what God's telling us. And they were beaten and sent off, and the church prayed for them that God would let the message keep going forward. Now, after the apostles did expanding signs and wonders, they were back in the temple preaching like they did before, and we pick up now in verse 17 of chapter 5. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And now the text that is on your insert starts here at verse 27. And when they brought them, had, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a story. What a day that must have been in which we have just read. We ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give us aid so that we might understand your word and how it applies to our lives. Lord, give us a loftier view of you and your power and your providence. Give us boldness and courage to be faithful witnesses for Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you don't know by now, Redeemer is a church with Reformation roots. I said in the first service before they saw the children's church in the icon of Martin Luther in the Reformed Church. Um, that, that's funnier to some than others, but at any rate... We are a church in the Reformed tradition, and that relates a bit to this text in this way. The Reformation of the 16th century was essentially about uh, evangelical Christians, those who believed that the Bible was God's inspired word and authority, and that Jesus was the way of salvation. Um, Those Christians standing up to erroneous teachings coming from the predominant Roman church at the time, against the abusive behavior of both ecclesiastical leaders and civil leaders the magistrates, in conjunction, oppressing those who wanted to say that the Scripture is God's Word and God's authority. It's God's Word, not man's. So in essence, this comes up over and over again for Christians in various epochs. It'll come up in your own personal life, where the wisdom of man will be spoken as as the popular opinion or the prevailing move of culture, and we have to say we have to follow God, not man. And the Reformation of all events that relate to us that we can think of relates most to this story of the apostles who first utter these historic words. And really the lesson we gain from watching what the apostles do, and later the reformers and others that you have seen stand up for God in the face of the word of man that sought to destroy them, no matter what, we should not cease 
to bear witness to Christ as he is revealed by the Scriptures. No matter what obstacle may arise, we should not cease to give testimony to the true Jesus Christ. No matter what human opposition may rise up against us, we are called to testify to Christ, our risen Savior. No matter what the cost may be to our lives, we are commissioned to declare Christ. Think about this. Our chief enemy, the enemy that haunts and terrorizes every person at some level, is death. Death has been defeated, though, by Christ. We know that. The apostles knew that. They realized when they saw the risen Jesus, and he commissioned them as he did, and he ascended into heaven, sent his spirit so they could bear testimony to him. They knew they could no longer be defeated. Yes, these powers could kill them. These powers could make their life on earth miserable. They knew how short this life was, and they knew because of the risen Christ, they could not really be killed. That in Christ, in union with Jesus, their fate would be the same. They would be raised again, that they would one day be with their Father. They would one day enjoy the new creation in the world to come. That freed them to be witnesses for Christ, and nothing could stop them. Nothing could get in their way. Nothing could lessen their boldness because death no longer scared them. This is what drives them to never cease declaring the name of Christ, no matter what comes up against them. Let's walk through the story. It's an exciting one, one of the best uh, in the book of Acts, and they're all very exciting, to say the least, as we see going through. Uh, First, there's a pressure that's starting to build now. Uh, This persecution that we saw in chapter 4 is is becoming wider now in chapter 5. Um, there is the preaching of Jesus again in the temple area. They were told once not to do this. Now, the reason they go, it's not just to invite persecution, but this is the most strategic place in Jerusalem for evangelism. And so the apostles go there with all the Jews coming to the temple trying to do their acts of worship. What better place could there be to tell them that Jesus fulfills those acts of worship, the sacrifices in the temple itself? Jesus is superior to it. And so it's a great place to start to preach the gospel. So they keep going there, and people are hearing the word. They're doing signs and wonders, and people are coming to Christ. And so, in verse 17, the high priest sees this, and he can't stand any more of it. And notice how the text uh, identifies the initial uh, people who arrest these apostles. But the high priest, verse 17, rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees. Remember the Sadducees are the anti-supernaturalists, in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin's mixed with various leaders and teachers, but the Sadducees would be like the modern-day liberals. They don't really believe in miracles, angels they certainly don't believe in, and they don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. They like the cultural accolades they get from their place of prestige on the Sanhedrin. Um, They're the materialists, if you will. And so they don't like the signs and the wonders and all the attention that's being drawn to the apostles. They didn't like it with Christ, and now they don't like it with his apostles. And we know this because of the way the text lays out, notice verse 17, and they were filled with jealousy. Verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. This is a a large holding area. But notice the motivating factor in their being. They were filled with jealousy, the Sadducees and the high priest. And jealousy, as you know and I know, is a wicked motivator. It's one of the most wicked of motivators, and it causes us to do the worst things. Some of the most heinous acts are based on jealousy. Calvin, who is one of those reformers, um, who also, every time he wrote something in a commentary or preached a sermon or wrote a letter to somebody, that was just more evidence against him 
that could have been used in his trial to execute him in the days of the Reformation. And when he's interpreting this passage, he says with regard to the jealousy shown here, the thing that drove them to try to attack the apostles, Calvin said the fury of the wicked was kindled with these things so that they raged sorer afresh. We see at his day those men moved with devilish fury. Not only were Peter and John arrested this time, but look at verse 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So now it seems uh, a number of the apostles, we, we could assume all of them, but certainly more than just Peter and John, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Verse 19. Just before, just before verse 19, you can imagine what happens. The high priest and his company know that they're securely locked, and then they go home. Not too far from the temple complex, no doubt, but they go home comfortably, a bit of a sigh. We got them all. I mean, they were all there, and we got them all this time. We just got to sleep on this and figure out how we're going to handle this because this is our opportunity. It's not just Peter and John now. We got the apostles. And so they, law, they go off to sleep. Then verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, remember, the Sadducees don't believe in angels, so I believe the Lord has a sense of humor in this. Um, when they find out how the apostles got released, it's just going to make it worse, their anti-supernaturalism. The Lord could have freed them by an earthquake like he does otherwise. But in this case, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, and so the, the angel of the Lord gives them a commission, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And the ESV does a good job of capturing this life. You see it in capital. It's meant to be a reference back to the Christ they're proclaiming, the risen Jesus. Go in back to the temple and speak on the same stuff you were speaking up before. Keep going and keep doing it. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, daybreak and began to teach. Now recognize when they give them this the angel gives this order. He doesn't tell them they would be safe to do it. He does not promise them, if you go and preach, I'll watch over you, just like in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I will hold back anyone who tries to get, and you go preach. He doesn't say this. It's just go preach. The angel did not promise them deliverance. For all they knew, this would be their end. They probably thought it might be their end anyways in prison. But now the angel opens the door and says, go preach. The angel doesn't say, go back to your homes. Go, go outside in those little towns and, and just hold up for a while till this settles. No, I'm going to let you out and go out and keep preaching. So when the sun rises, you start preaching again. You know, even though we know the story and we know they are delivered from this case, none of the apostles were delivered otherwise. Maybe John. John, as church history says, was tortured several times, but probably died an old man. None of the other apostles did. Calvin captures this, this irony. We think, well, they were freed in this. Not really. Their freedom from that jail ultimately led to their death. Their freedom on this day that the angel said, go preach in the temple, ultimately meant all of them would die. Calvin says, this is the end of their being freed from the jail, that they employ themselves stoutly in preaching the gospel and provoke their enemies, enemies courageously until they die valiantly. Verse 21 and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So people start coming as soon as the sun comes up. They come to worship. They come for readings. And there they are preaching again. Now, they're not in the cell anymore, and they're not in the area where the Sanhedrin would meet. 
So the Sanhedrin's now coming back at daybreak to assemble again. Verse 21, the second part. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council. So you could just imagine all these dignitaries putting on their robes and all their paraphernalia that they wear in the religious, uh, different, different classes of religious order and in heights of education. And I'm from the Sadducees, I'm from the Pharisees. These are the teachers of the law. These are the rabbis that are up and coming. And they're coming together and they're smugly knowing we've got the apostles. And they're ready to have them in front of them. They're ready to show their power to them. They are nothing but ready to put an end to this uprising against them and their authority. So they called together the council of all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. So they start settling down in their seats, ready to see them, have them come, or in their standing area where they stand around in an elevated capacity to show whose rank is what. And there they are, proud as peacocks, waiting for the apostles to come. And they're waiting. And there's a delay. There's an awkward delay. There's a commotion. What's going on? Where are they? Verse 22, but when the officers came, They did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. What would happen next, they're wondering. Not only were these apostles not afraid of the Sanhedrin any longer, they were dealing with apostles who had angels helping them got out of prison now. What's going to happen here? We gotta, this, is, this is something we have not yet seen before, never before. In verse 25, someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So you notice they've gotten wise to this situation. They realize they cannot just do what they've been doing, throw them in jail right before dark. Now they were in a situation where they had to have the matter addressed. The intrigue of the populace had protected, by God's providence, the apostles at this moment. Now it was time for the apostles to give account in yet another trial before the Sanhedrin. We've seen this before. Let's look at verse 27 now. Once again, we don't see an appeal for a release we see Christ exalted over personal deliverance. Whatever the trial it is that we come up against, brothers and sisters, whatever difficulty we face, it is God's will for us to first ask for Christ to be exalted. It's not wrong to ask for deliverance from a situation, but the first motive of the believer who understands the resurrection in a maturing way, I understand we're different places and where we are in our faith as the Lord has called us, But as you grow, it becomes more important that Christ be exalted in every situation. And if God does deliver us from that situation, praise him. But if he doesn't, he will never fail to deliver us ultimately. And may Christ be exalted. That can be applied in any situation in our life, not just near-death ones like this. We don't see an appeal for a release at all. Verse 27, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, which is a great testimony to how widespread the teaching had gone. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The Jewish leaders, you could see what they're doing, this blame shifting. 
they're making the Romans out to be the bad guys. Now, anyone who knew anything about this case knew how the Romans came to crucify Jesus. But what they are saying is, we had nothing to do with this. The Romans crucified him, and you're making it seem like it's us. Completely blame-shifting towards the Romans. They were quick to shift this blame to see how popular Jesus had become. And they knew that they would be in trouble if it was laid on them. And they didn't like the fact that this message the apostles were teaching was constantly personal towards the leaders of the Jews. The apostles blamed the Jewish leaders for crucifying Christ, and they were right to do so. But there's more to the heart of it. There's something personal that all of us had part of. But verse 28, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Notice, too, they can't even say his name. Um, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I mean, they failed on every level. They, They don't want to bring attention to Jesus, so let's kill the apostles. When they can't kill the apostles, it brings attention to Jesus. And when they bring the apostles in again and tell them you can't talk about this guy, um, then people know it's Jesus. They can't do it. If they kill him, if they kill the guys, the the apostles, then Jesus' name is spread. If they don't kill the guys, they tell everybody about Jesus. And so you can see the frustration when they say, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. We don't even want to say it. We're not going to help you anymore. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter, here we go again. Here's a mini-sermon. Peter's going to speak, and now it says the apostles with him. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. They maintained their strategy of not defending themselves, but rather lifted up Christ. We must obey God rather than men. These are arguably some of the most important words in the whole New Testament. We must obey God rather than men. Back to Calvin in the 16th century, speaking about this text. But so soon as rulers do lead us away from the obedience of God, because they strive against God with sacrilegious boldness, their pride must be abated, that God may be above all in authority. Then all smokes of honor vanish away, For God doth not vouchsafe to bestow honorable titles upon men to the end they may darken his glory. Now, in more modern terms, John Stott tells us, and it helps us interpret this concept of obeying God over man. Stott said, Christians are called to be conscientious citizens and generally speaking to submit to human authorities. But if the authority concerned misuse its God's-given power to command what he forbids or forbids what he commands then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God's. This is important, difficult to apply in every case. We should always have discussion about how this might be applied. But what we have here is, without a question, a call to a level of ecclesiastical or even civil disobedience when we're being forced to do something or say something that is not God's will or God's word. But they use the occasion not to bargain for the release, but to exalt the name of Christ. We must obey God rather than men. And here's the sermon, and you can make out the outline yourself. Look at verse 30 down to 32. And you know, these are just summaries of the sermons that Peter and the apostles are giving. But look at what's packed in there. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. I mean, if there's any chance at bargaining, they just lost it there. And they weren't looking for it but you can see how direct they are. Verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
and we are witnesses to these things. We've seen it. We know it. We know it's happened. You can sense their, their courageousness. I mean, the Sanhedrin's lost this. They're not going to be able to stop these men. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Basic outline or summary of the sermon. You killed him, and God raised him. You rejected him, God vindicated him. Now, that's going to speak to the heart of the one who's listening for the gospel. Only God can prompt this. But it's not just that they killed Jesus. Corporately, they did. But to us as individuals, and if you're an individual even in the Sanhedrin in those days, when you pause and think of what Jesus said he came to do, to forgive us for our sins, that he had to be the lamb laid down for the slaughter for us, it personalizes our sins and how they impact the plan of redemption. The reason Jesus died is for my sins and your sins. And so in that sense, we put Jesus on the cross in that way of saying it. And so it, spe- it, it's, it cuts to the heart as he exalts Christ in his work for us and speaks so boldly to these leaders and others who are listening. We, verse 32, are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. It started with obedience, and it's kind of ending with obedience. And John Stott again says, God's people are under obligation to obey him. He's talking about this obedience in declaring Christ when given occasion. And if they do so, even though they may suffer when they have, have to disobey human authorities, they will be richly rewarded by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will help us. Finally, if you look at verse 33 down to 42, there's an, there's a, an amazing act of God's providence that at this point in time delivers them from death. Um, again, they all die martyrs' death, some of them shortly after this. But at this moment, in this occasion, which is monumental, God preserves them. And this is a lesson to us that the end of our days will happen when God has ordained them. You won't live a day longer or a day shorter than the the day God has appointed for you. There will be earthly things that happen that we'll think this is a mistake or that's a tragedy, that doctor messed up or that accident because in reality, the sovereign God has our days numbered. And we yield to his providence joyfully as people who know we will live forever in him that we will be raised again in the resurrection on that great day. With that, we can rest in God's providence to guide our fate when we stand up for Christ, when we stand up for his word, whenever that may be called, we may be called upon to do it. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So the attitude of the Sanhedrin at this time is we've got to kill them. And you get the sense of immediacy in verse 33. They were about to kill them. Uh, And given their track record, why would we think otherwise? We saw what they did with Jesus. They were generally responsible for the beating of people, jailing people, even killing them. But verse 34, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor. He'd been around a while, seen things happen. Held in honor by all the people, he stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Now, what do we know about Gamaliel? He was a highly respected leader. We see that in this text and elsewhere, another place in Acts, he shows up. He's referred to as the teacher or mentor of the Apostle Paul when Paul was Saul. Saul's learnedness in his scholarship came from Gamaliel, who himself came from a line of some of the most well-known respected Jewish rabbis. Outside of the Bible, we have reference to him in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, 
Josephus refers to him, the great Jewish historian. Paul's educational and professional credentials that he gained from Gamaliel were the things that got him into the temples and synagogues. You ever wonder how Paul could just walk into a synagogue and start preaching? He's a student of Gamaliel. He graduated from whatever, fill in the university. Because of that, he could do it. So we know this about, that much about Gamaliel. Verse 34, Gamaliel stands up. He gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And then he diffuses the rage of the council long enough to talk the situation out. And he draws from two historic situations. It's, it's fun a bit to try to figure these out because these are common names in, in Judaism. And so there are multiple uprisings that happen, especially in the first century, that are noted. So we can't be sure, but we have these names that do show up in other historic accounts. Clearly, though, the audience here knows what he's talking about. Verse 35, he says to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. What happened after he was killed? All who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. See where he's going? Relax about these apostles. This Jesus was killed, it just happened, there'll be a fury, but it'll die out. At least, let's see if it does. He's trying to calm them. Verse 37, one witness isn't enough, we'll give another. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So he's relaxing the crowd. Don't get caught up, we've seen this before. But what he says next is the wisest of everything he said. So in this present case, I tell you, verse 38, keep away from these men and let them them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. He is 100% right. Gamaliel could not have been more right. And history has proven him right. For if it is, this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. The apostles could not disobey God, so they spoke the truth about Jesus. God's providence would guide their fate. And in this particular case, the Lord placed the thoughts and words of Gamaliel in a strategic way that led to the immediate deliverance of the apostles for them to continue doing the will of God for as long as he he had appointed It's interesting what the text says next in verse 39. You might even be found opposing God, so they took his advice. What advice? Not to kill him. But if you're the apostles, you're, you, you know you've been spared of death, but look at verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, most scholars will tell you, and you'll see this in your study Bibles and commentaries, this was most likely the famous 40 lashes, 40 minus 1, 39 lashes also referred to as, with leather straps, with stuff that's bone and and metal in there, and terrible beatings that render people close to death. Um, Different levels of beatings took place, but they were beatings, and they were bad, and they were beaten, and sometimes people were either disfigured or injured permanently or had long times of recovery after this, and it serves the purpose of keeping them quiet, thinking again twice about ever doing this again. So it's, it's a quick verse, verse 41, they just, or verse 40, where they just, they were beaten, but man, don't take lightly what beat means here. It's flogging, 
it's, it's near killing them. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Man, we do not like to suffer anymore. We just don't like suffering. Suffering means 75 degrees. I got to get it to 62. I mean, seriously, seriously, we don't like suffering. What we say is suffering is not suffering. I don't have cruise control. I got to step on the gas the whole time on my way to vacation. You know what I mean? We just don't, suffering, it's just so hard for us to grasp that. Now, some of you have suffered greatly. You had some medical condition that's rendered you in pain all the time. You've had epics like that, other, other emotional suffering. Imagine that on, the, on this kind of level, this beating that they received, this flogging that they received. We have to really pause and think about suffering to appreciate this. And then their answer to it. They left the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor. Dishonor for the name. It harkens back to Jesus preaching to them and to us in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Did they obey man after all? Verse 42. And every day in the temple, every day, not like strategically, let's sneak in there when they're not around, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, is Jesus. So Gamaliel's analysis was right. But if if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. No matter what, we should not cease to bear witness to Christ. I love what Derek Thomas says in his commentary. This is Christianity. It is a conviction in the hearts of men and women about the identity and significance of Jesus that must be shared with others. It is something vibrant and passionate. It is more than mere notion. It is an engagement of the entire being in something something being in something views as a matter of life or death. Nothing is more important than knowing the forgiveness of sins that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. Sharing this news is the Christian's life calling. Back to Martin Luther, since it was so well introduced by the children. At the Diet of Worms, the trial for Martin Luther, for being a heretic, his heresy was saying that the Bible is the authority and not the Pope. All his writings that were critical of the Roman church's obscuring of the biblical message of the gospel were literally laid out on a table at his trial. Luther was convinced the Bible was the sole authority of the church, not popes or councils of men. His chief concern was bringing the scriptural teaching of justification by faith in Christ alone back to life, that the only way you could be right with God is by trusting in Jesus Christ and his finished work. He was convinced that was his life endeavor to bring that biblical doctrine back to the forefront of the church's understanding and teaching. He was initially at that trial called to look at the table full of all the books and retract what he wrote. His opposition to papal authority was the root of the matter that angered the Roman church and the Roman authorities and even the civil authorities. He had everybody mad at him. After a day of questioning about all these works that he had written, Luther, at the end of the day, asked to have more time to consider because they wanted him 
to outright recant everything. In his excellent history, called the History of the Reformation in the 16th Century, historian J.H. Merle de Bonnier narrates one of the greatest events in the history of the church. At the beginning of the next day, the orator of the Diet said indignantly to Luther, You have not answered the question put to you. You were not summoned hitherto to call into question the decisions of councils. You are required to give a clear and precise answer. Will you or will you not retract? Upon this, Luther replied without much hesitation in classic Luther form, Since your most serene majesty and your most high mightiness requires from me a clear, simple answer, I will give you one. Not quite, but he will give you one. And this is it. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the councils because it is clear as the day that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted, and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the Word of God, I cannot and will not retract. For it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. And then, looking around in the assembly before which he stood and which held his life in its hands, he said, Here I stand, I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. And then the historian writes this interpretation, moving along. Thus spoke a monk before the emperor and the mighty ones of the nation. And this feeble and despised man alone, but relying on the grace of the Most High, appeared greater and mightier than them all. His words contain a power against which all these mighty rulers can do nothing. This is the weakness of God, which is stronger than man. The empire and the church on the one hand, this obscure man on the other, had met. God had brought together these kings and these prelates publicly to confound their wisdom. The battle is lost, and the consequences of this defeat of the great ones of the earth will be felt among every nation and in every age to the end of time. The assembly was thunderstruck. Many of the princes found it difficult to conceal their admiration. The emperor, recovering from his first impression, exclaimed, This monk speaks with an intrepid heart and an unshaken courage. The Spaniards and others alone felt confounded and soon began to ridicule the greatness of soul with which they could not comprehend. If you do not retract, said the chancellor, as soon as the diet had recovered from the impression that Luther's speech had left, if you do not retract, the emperor and the states of the empire will consult what course to adopt against this incorrigible heretic. At these words, Luther's friends began to tremble, but the monk repeated, May God be my helper, for I cannot retract anything. After this, Luther withdrew, and the princes deliberated. Each one felt that this was a critical moment for Christendom. The yes or the no of this monk would decide, perhaps for the ages, the repose of the church and of the world. His adversaries had endeavored to alarm him, and they had only exalted him before the nation. They had thought to give greater publicity to his defeat, and they had but increased the glory of his victory. It was Luther's moment, but it was a moment bigger than himself. It was his turn against the Sanhedrin. Following the example of the apostles, Luther said in essence, I must obey God rather than man. And in the smallest ways and in the biggest ways, May this also be said of us. We must obey God rather than men. Let's pray. Lord, be our helper. Give us the words to speak 